This morning, we are going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1 again. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets called out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my slaves, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they returned and said, as Yahweh of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has done with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. Then the angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these seventy years? Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with good words comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, call out saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very wrathful with the nations who are at ease. For I was only a little wrathful, but they helped increase the calamity. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, call out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, My cities will again overflow with good, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Then I lifted up my eyes, says Zechariah, And saw, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head, but these craftsmen have come to cause them to tremble, to throw down the horns of the nations 
who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Amen. This is the word of God. As we do, let's pause and ask for help as we come to a portion of God's word, which admittedly is at first to many of us maybe a little confusing. So we want to ask that the Spirit of God would help us. Let's pray. Oh God, in humility, we want to come before we go any further and thank you first for these words. We thank you that they are among those words that your servant Apostle Paul calls all Scripture and that they are breathed out by you and they are profitable for our instruction. We pray now this morning that you would take these words given to your servant Zechariah some 2,500 years ago that you would cause your inerrant, infallible, timeless word to have its full purpose in and among us who are gathered here this morning in the name of your son Jesus, our great king. Amen. These were days of discouragement for the people of Israel and Judah. We're given clear markers of the months and the years that these revelations or words from God came to Zechariah. And because we, through archaeology, have a very clear idea of the reigns of various rulers like Darius, who is one of the Persian emperors, Medo-Persian emperors, kings, we know that this is around 520 years before the birth of Christ, 520 B.C. Israel, the the ten tribes in the north, have long been scattered by the Assyrians. That had happened nearly 200 years earlier, when in 722 B.C., Assyria overran the ten tribes in the north. And we've learned in evening services through the servant of God, Hosea, in his writings, that the people of Israel in the north had received warning after warning after warning, call after call after call to repent and return. And, and as Zechariah recounts, they did not heed God's call. And so they had been overrun by the Assyrians and scattered and among various nations for nearly 200 years. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, the next great empire, had come along and they had overrun Judah, the kingdom in the south, and they had hauled off many of their leaders and population into exile in Babylon. Daniel had been among them. Um, and they had uh, overrun Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in the days of Zechariah, looked somewhat like the images you've seen of Gaza in the past week, if you've seen any images of the rubble of Gaza after the bombings, just rubble. The, the Babylonians had had enough of rebellion of the Jewish people. And so when they came in 586, they burned the stones uh, that comprised the temple. So once you burn with fire, 
walls and stones to such a heat and such a degree that the stone itself begins to disintegrate, lose its consistency. And, and so the city of Jerusalem is, is absolute rubble. The walls won't be rebuilt until under the leadership of Nehemiah many years after the ministry of Zechariah. So these are bleak days. A small remnant has returned from exile to Jerusalem that had been the mercy of God and the promise of God that a small remnant of, of Judah and the people of Israel re- returned. They have returned. Zechariah is among them. The prophet Haggai is among them. And years earlier, there had been a, an effort under the command of God to start the rebuilding of the temple that had been demolished by the Babylonians. And the work had started and the foundation had been set. But after discouragement and lots of different concerns and distractions, the work of the rebuilding of the temple had come to a halt. I give this background just to kind of give you an idea that as far as a time period, the days of Zechariah for Israel and Judah were extremely discouraging. The nation was virtually unidentifiable. They weren't really a nation at this point. You notice in verse 1 and in verse 7, and it is not an accident that the Holy Spirit... Uh, giving Zechariah these words to record in Holy Scripture notes that these are the years of Darius. If you've been reading 1 Kings or 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, in the history of Israel and Judah, it would be the year of whomever the king of Judah or the king of Israel happened to be at that time. Well, there is no king of Israel and there is no king of Judah at this time. Zerubbabel is in the line of David, and, and he is around, but he's by no means a king. According to other nations right now, Judah would be a joke. It's our concern because they're in Holy Scripture, and, and in reading God's love for Israel and Judah, we, we can sometimes get the idea that they were this massive, influential people and nation in those days they weren't. You're talking under 100,000 people at this point. Um, A a small remnant that's returned. And in these bleak and meager, discouraging days, God sends a word, not only to his servant Haggai, you can read about that in the book of Haggai, to rebuild the temple, to get back to the work. But God also sends a word of comfort and of hope and promise to this young man, Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Iddo. And God gives to Zechariah a series of visions about the way things really are right now and the way things will be. And they are wonderful words. They are disturbing in that we are shaken from a a sense of maybe false security as we have been this past week with events in Israel. We've been reminded that this world, after all, is not a wonderful world. That you can have all of your wishes that evil isn't evil, sin isn't sin, You can wish that as much as you want, but we have been reminded this week 
that sin is real, evil is real, wickedness is real. The world that the Bible describes is real. And we've been horrified and grieved by what we've heard has occurred in Israel. It is truly the greatest um, unprovoked attack upon Jewish people simply for the sake of their being Jewish since the Holocaust. You've maybe heard that, but that is, that is true. There, there's been lots of different conflicts in Israel over the years and wars. But this is, this is really something that has taken place, and it is grievous. And so here in the word of God this morning is a word of comfort for all who would hear. And I want to start with you in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I want to go back, and really this is the introduction to the whole letter, and it is the, the main practical application both for the people of Israel and for every one of us. What does God want Israel? What, what does he want from them? What does he want from us? He wants us to return to him. That's in verse 3. That's what God wants from sinners. Seek the Lord while he may be found, God said through Isaiah. Let the wicked turn from his ways. Turn from our unbelief. Turn from our selfishness and our greed and our disobeying of God's good and reasonable righteous laws. God issues here in these opening first six, six verses a, a gracious call to repentance. Israel is experiencing great duress and discouragement at this present time at the writing of Zechariah and down to our present day. And the explanation is, verse 2, in part, in part, the judgment of God. It's not the full story. God had sent, as I've already said, prophet after prophet, as, as God says here through Zechariah. In verse 5, the prophets were sent. Verse 6, God sent the, his slaves or his servants, the prophets, to send message after message after message to Israel and Judah to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their disobedience and turn to the Lord. And they refused and they refused and they did not listen. They did not listen. And so God in his righteousness and in his justice and in his jealousy his righteous jealousy, not petty jealousy, his jealousy for his own name, for he has set his name upon Israel. God is forever made himself to be the God of Israel. He set his name on them. And so God is jealous for his own glory, for his own sake, and for his people. And in his love and discipline, both in the day of Zechariah and down to the present day, the partial hardening of Israel and these horrible things that they undergo, part of the explanation is God's anger. And that is true, of course, upon all humanity. All humanity is under the judgment of God. This is the only way you explain death, under the curse of God. This world is under the anger and wrath. Paul says in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness. And part of that wrath and that judgment 
is upon Israel, and in particular, because to whom much is given, much is required, and to them were given, among all the peoples on earth, the oracles of God, the word of God, the scriptures, and to them initially was sent the Messiah. But of course, we know in the Bible that it wasn't surprising that Israel rejected her Messiah. After all, the apostles on the day of Pentecost stood up and, and Peter stood up and preached that this was according to the plan of God, that the Jews delivered Jesus over to the Romans who crucified him. This is not an accident, and yet Israel is culpable, responsible for her rejecting of the repeated and clear call of God. And so this is a reminder of why the way things are, but God is not done with Israel. Notice again this gracious call to repentance in verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you. Don't just return to the land, return to the God who promised you the land and gave it to you in the first place. Return to him. And this is a call for Israel, and this is a call for us. Wherever we are this morning, to the extent that we are not walking with the Lord in his ways, maybe we have trusted in Christ long ago, but we have wandered from our love from the Lord for the Lord. We should absolutely use the seriousness of the events of these days to wake up and return to the Lord. I mean, what would it take to wake us up? Does does Iran have to start flying some planes and launching some missiles? Russia have to get involved? I mean, what level does it have to get to that we wake up? Now, wake up. I'm not talking about speculating about the timing of the the rapture and the return of the Lord. No man knows that hour. But what do we have to do to wake up? Wow, God's word is true. It describes the way things are. I need to live for the Lord Jesus so that I may not be ashamed at his coming, which could happen at any moment. It's a gracious call to repentance to Israel and a gracious call of repentance to us. The church is certainly every bit of need of repentance as Israel of old was. But Israel did not listen. And in these opening verses in verse 6, in verses 5 and 6, there's a sober warning is a sober warning when it comes to the will of sinful man and the word of God, which wins? There's a warning here. God's word wins. God's word wins, always wins. We, we tend to think, well, God, you know, we, we here in New England, we're really stubborn. Uh, okay. Israel Jews tend to think, oh, we're really stubborn. Okay. The puny little will of men is no match for the sovereign will represented by the word of God. 
God's word will accomplish what he has said it will accomplish. And he says here in verse 6, Did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my slaves, the prophets, God gave warning through Moses and all the prophets. This is how it will play out for Israel. And God says, Did that not overtake your fathers? God had warned all the way back through Moses that if the people disobeyed the covenant and followed idols and worshipped them and other gods, that they would experience the judgment of God. That's exactly what happened. In fact, God even prophesied, God even through the prophets declared that they would be cast out of the land and scattered. And we know that that took place. We know now that God also said that they would be regathered and we are among, in the, in the span of human history, we are really in a unique position to witness something remarkable that in 1948, the nation, the modern state of Israel was formed as a place for Jews scattered all around the world from South America, from Asia, from Europe, where they could come and presumably be safe. Remarkable what we've witnessed. But the word of God will win. And that's a warning for us. If you're here this morning and, and young or old, we need to humble ourselves under the word of God. And so in these opening six verses is wonderful, um, a wonderful call to repentance a gracious, gentle, compassionate call on the part of God to return to him. And notice what God says. I want to, I want to end our little study of verses, first six verses here. That God says, and I will return to you, that I may return to you. God cannot be a partner to wickedness. He, he can't compromise. He won't. There are some things that God can't do. He can't sin. He cannot be a partaker of sin. He doesn't compromise. He can't acknowledge that somehow and lie that there are other gods besides him. He will not give his glory to another. And so our repentance, our returning to the Lord, in a sense, gives God the opportunity to draw near to us in power. This is really describes every revival that there's ever been in Israel and in the history of the church. It's when the men and women of God and those who claim Christ, when God by his spirit convicts of sin and men and women of God start turning from their sin and start taking up what is right and what is good and they start loving God and those are the times when you see revival when God moves in a powerful way among his people and not only do his people turn to him but God draws near as it were to his people in power in remarkable ways may that occur in our day well next let's look together just quickly at a review of verses 7 through 17 we looked at this in some detail last Sunday morning, but the details can be so disorienting 
for uh, someone maybe who's not familiar with Old Testament imagery and so forth that you can maybe get a little lost. And it's not my intent in these next moments to, to rehearse my whole sermon last Sunday. It's, it's recorded for better or for worse. You can listen to it if you'd like. But God now, after calling the people of Israel to repentance in the night, God gives a vision, a vision to Zechariah, a vision that is to be encouraging. Notice that these are, this is a moment of comfort. These are words of hope. And, and in short, God gives to Zechariah this glorious, mysterious vision of these powerful horses and these figures on them. And there's one figure that is remarkable among all the others, and he is not just an angel. There are angels here. He is the angel. And I want you to notice, even in the first six verses and throughout the entire prophecy, that how many times the Lord God is referred to as the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And his hosts, his armies are angelic. These are powerful beings, majestic beings, and uh, they don't have problem um, with armaments or, or defenses when they go into battle. These are the hosts of Yahweh, the Lord. And in the history of Israel, there were numerous occasions when, when God helped his people to understand that he was Yahweh of hosts. I mean, he, God can handle it on his own. But he has a massive angelic army. And we say, where are they right now? Well, we learn in this first vision that they are patrolling the earth, verse 10. The Lord has his angelic messengers, beings, warriors, patrolling the earth. They are witnessing what is going on. God knows. God is not indifferent. God is not inactive. And the one who is over these angelic hosts is none other than the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts, as he described himself to Joshua, who is the angel of the Lord, an angel, a messenger who is unique among all the other angels, and in fact has more in common with Yahweh, God himself, than any of the other angels. He is, in fact, the Son of God. This is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. It is clear that this is not just another angel. This angel is so identified closely with God, with Yahweh, that he is one with him, though distinct at the same time. And we saw last Sunday morning that here is a moving picture of our our warrior king. He's not indifferent. You wonder what Jesus thinks about what happened last Saturday? Uh, you, you don't want to be on the other side of his wrath. Uh, Jesus longs to be with his people. That's part of his motive. He's coming for us to take him to himself. He longs to be with his people. But part of the motive also for Jesus longing to come and to establish his kingdom is you have to understand that within the holy heart of Christ is building the vengeance of God. He's standing there in this valley among the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees was really, in a sense, the tree of Israel. It was, um, it's a fragrant tree. It is a tree that uh, is, in Isaiah, set over and against the nettles. 
Instead of, instead of briars and nettles, there'll be the myrtle tree. It's a pleasant bush tree identified with Israel. And you have this picture here of Christ among his people. They may be in the valley. It may be in the night. Times may be discouraging. They may seem to be nothing. The city may seem to be in rubble. But there is Christ, the angel of the Lord, standing at the ready, commanding the troops, the angelic troops of God, receiving a report. And when he hears that these wicked, evil nations are at ease, Yahweh God and his angel is, is none too pleased because these nations, notice, they were the tools of God to discipline Israel and Judah. God did send them to judge Israel, but God is wrathful, verse 15, with these nations who are at ease and at rest because God was only a little wrathful, but they helped increase the calamity. They may be tools and instruments of God, but wicked nations, wicked Evil men far exceed the intent, the disciplinary intent of of God, and they just intend violence. And with a satanic, murderous motivation, they seek to simply obliterate Israel. And, and you, if anything, from this past week, you need to understand that. As I've said this many times. You really need to take it in, even after the Holocaust and all of the evidence of what happened to the Jews in in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and even in Russia before World War II. This is not just a random occasion. This is a satanic, demonic, determined, generation to generation intent to absolutely annihilate and slaughter the Jewish people because according to God's sovereign, mysterious plan, they are the apple of his eye. He hates them. Satan hates them because he hates Christ. And we've seen that this week. And I've said many times, you take the United States out of the picture right now, who's going to come to the defense of Israel? Nobody. Nobody. All, all of the nations around. Turkey, tend to think, is on the fence. Oh, no way. They'd be happy for Israel to be gone. Iran, gone. Uh, Syria, sure, why not? Egypt, no problem. United Arab Emirates, yeah, Qatar, as I said in Sunday school, Qatar, where in the World Cup last summer, we were all supposed to see what a wonderfully modern, advanced um, uh, Arabic nation, respectable, host to the World Cup. Um, There was a little bit of kerfuffle because they didn't want beer to be served at the last second. But other than that, the Qataris were a very good host for the largest sports event that the world... And and everybody came, and and nice progressive liberal people in the West think, isn't that nice? The Arabs are... They're coming along. See, there can be peace with Islam. And and go and lo and behold, it's the Qataris who are right now, as I speak, protecting and hosting the leader of Hamas in luxury and also allowing for the meeting of Iran representatives with him. Uh, That's Qatar. You just go all around. You would have the absolute slaughter and obliteration of Israel if it weren't for the grace of God and and raising up the United States at this moment. Uh, Maybe England would try to help out. That's about it. Uh, If you look at the United Nations, uh, United Nations is really, at this point, nations united on the obliteration of Israel. And you need to understand that. That is really what the United Nations is. 
They, you take a few nations out of that picture, and you would, have, you would have a slaughter that would make the Holocaust look small by comparison. So these nations, this is a satanically inspired hatred of the Jewish people. And we certainly don't want to have any part of those who are somehow saying that this is Israel's fault. This is rubbish. This is how you understand what's going on. This is how you understand that a nation the size of Vermont and New Hampshire. Vermont's a little smaller than New Hampshire. But we can picture New Hampshire. A nation the size of, of New Hampshire is the center of the world's attention. It's no accident. Satan hates the Jewish people, but Christ, we learned in this second vision, is jealous for his people, and it's a wonderful vision. Well, we need to come now to the, uh, in the few moments we have in remaining, to these four verses, verses 18 to 21. God will comfort, God will return to Jerusalem, and then Verse 18, there's a second, this is the second vision in the night. So God gives to Zechariah six visions in this section, chapters 1 through 6. The second vision is in verses 18 through 21. Zechariah lifted up his eyes again, and in the night he sees four horns. Um, we tend to think of horns as, as what's the big deal? It's not a nuclear weapon, it's, it's just a horn. Well, a horn would be symbolic of, of power and of violent power. Um, and uh, if you've ever been around uh, an animal with sharp horns, um, you suddenly are aware, hmm, I maybe need to be careful. Uh, that animal could do some harm to me. I've shared the story how when I was a boy, there was a goat across the street from us uh, with horns, and we had apple trees in our yard, and every once in a while that goat, which, you know, I was maybe this tall, and so the goat could look me square in the eyes, and uh, my brother and I, and, and every once in a while that goat would, would get out across the street and come over and want to eat the apples. We'd want to go out and play soccer or baseball or whatever, and the goat would stand there right there, and that goat would stand firm and bow its head down so the horns were looking right at us. And so we went and cried to Mommy, and... The older girl, who was probably 12, across the street, came over and took care of the goat. <laughs> Big, courageous boys we were. Horns are, uh, yeah, they'll hurt. I have an a, a, a antler, a deer shed. I showed to Scott Marston um, from a few years ago. I, I, I almost brought it this morning. But uh, it's a pretty good, nice shed. It's an antler, you know, a deer. One of those, get the picture? Bambi, one of Bambi's horns. And... Uh, you know, oh, and that's pretty neat. And then you start looking at those horns and you think, if I was in front of an animal that was with those horns and it was just me and the animal, uh, the animal and I, in a room, in a space, and we, I, uh, boy, that, that could do some harm. So horns represent power and danger. Power. And these four horns are spelled out in Daniel chapter 7. These are the successive kingdoms that threatened Judah, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek, and the Roman empires. It's, it's very clear that what God is doing here through Zechariah is just reiterating what he had revealed to Daniel years earlier, that there would be a succession of, of worldly kingdoms that would be powerful and would 
would scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Verse 19. And notice, this is 522 B.C. or so. And Judah, that's identifiable. But Israel, like, as I said, the ten tribes to the north, they've already been overrun by the Assyrians 200 years prior. And yet God still insists that they're still around. They still matter to him. Very detailed. Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. This is one of the many reasons why we do not believe and teach that the church in the present age is somehow spiritual Israel. That would get, it would just really get kind of strange. I mean, what part of you as a church are Israel? What part of you are, are, are Judah? What part of you are the 12 tribes? You get utter chaos if you read your Bible that way. Israel means Israel. Judah means Judah. Jerusalem means Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And so these four kingdoms were used by God and they scattered the Jewish people all over the earth. And we know that that happened. But then God showed in verse 20, Yahweh showed to Zechariah four craftsmen. Craftsmen. You go from four horns to four craftsmen. And the four craftsmen or smiths, um, they match these four horns and these four horns were these kingdoms these evil kingdoms that crushed the people notice in verse 21 they crushed them so that no man lifts up his head that is the history of the jewish people by and large is they have been so put down so crushed so annihilated so persecuted that that it's hard to even lift your head you just you're bowed down But God, who is sovereign over the events of of time and history, causes these craftsmen, verse 21, to come and to cause the horns, these, these, these kingdoms, to tremble. And so there is some discussion as to what these craftsmen are, whether they're angelic beings. It seems most likely that the craftsmen are actually, um, that God, for example, raised up the Babylonians, and they were a horn that scattered Israel and Judah. And then God raised up the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius, who's been mentioned, is, is one of the kings over the Persian Empire. And God raised up the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, and they overran the Babylonians. And then God raised up the Greeks, and the Greeks through Alexander the Great overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire. And then God raised up the Romans, and the Romans overthrew the Greek Empire. In other words, God is sovereign over the horns and over the craftsmen, and he can make a nation a horn or a craftsman at his sovereign will. And and one of the comforts here is that these present evil kingdoms that seem to be so dominant and unstoppable are undone by a succeeding kingdom. And of course, through Daniel and in Zechariah, we'll learn this as well. There is one final kingdom. And and in this place, it would be the fourth craftsman who is none other than Christ, the son of God and his kingdom. You learn in Daniel chapter seven, which will come like a mighty stone and crush all other kingdoms. And it will be an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom. These Craftsmen, God sends, verse 21, to cause the horns to tremble. 
The horns may seem mighty, they may seem powerful, but they will be thrown down, verse 21, who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Islam right now is, another thing we're learning right now is the reality of of Islamic religion. It's true. Certainly not all Muslims are are um, in the category of, of what Hamas carried out. We understand that. But if you look at the logic and the teaching of Islam, this is what it teaches is the annihilation of Jews and all infidels like you and like me. And right now, Islam seems incredibly powerful. I mean, that's humbling for the West right now. Oh, these Arabic Islamic nations really are powerful. And oh, Russia is kind of friends with Iran now. And oh, many of the cities of Europe are filled with Muslims now. Huh. And it can seem very disconcerting. And they may rise to even greater power. But we are told in this text that God will throw down every horn of the nations who have lifted up their horns, their power. And notice the land of Judah. God hasn't even forgotten the land. The land is not incidental. Why? Because God covenanted, promised to Abraham and to the people of Israel that he would give them that land. It is their land by covenant, and God will see to it that they have it. These are wonderful words of comfort. God is sovereign over the peoples, over the nations. Remember that as you hear news reports. And with that, I want to encourage you in closing to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've heard this morning a call to repentance. We've heard a word of comfort that Christ is mindful of his people and is a great warrior. God will comfort um, Israel and this, he will restore the cities of Judah. And every horn or every kingdom, every power that raises its head and its horn to cast down the people of Israel will ultimately be undone by the craftsmen of God. And I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, because I'm mindful in these days that uh, some of you might be a little bit disturbed and a little bit scared and wondering. And as I said in Sunday school, we should be disturbed. Life shouldn't just carry on as it did before last week. It would actually be just really, um, I, I don't know, ignorant and unfeeling. God loves Israel. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God loves all sinners. We are also to pray for, it's awful, the, the earthquakes that have taken place in Afghanistan. People who are suffering there. We, we pray for little children and those who are suffering in the Gaza Strip. We understand and we pray for them, as I prayed this morning, I believe. These are unsettling days, and we should, we should wake up. And at the same time, as believers in Jesus Christ, in fear of God, listen to these words. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 in closing. You, brothers, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. That is the day of the Lord. There's a, there's a day of judgment coming. A seven-year period in which God is going to judge Israel and going to judge this world in an unprecedented time. The rapture, we will be meet the Lord in the clouds. The Lord will come for his church before that time. Paul says in verse 5, For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. Awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us for wrath. I'm just going to pause there. Dear believer in Jesus Christ, there's nothing in the Bible that promises you'll escape persecution. Nothing in the Bible that says you'll somehow escape martyrdom. But the Bible does teach that you and I and all those in Christ will never experience the unmitigated final judgment of God. Be at peace. You're okay. You're safe in Jesus. What you learn of the warrior king in Zechariah and elsewhere in Scripture, you believer in Jesus Christ can seriously say, I'm with him. By God's grace, I'm with him and he's with me. And if Christ is with me, (laughs) I'm okay. You're okay. For God, verse 9, has not appointed us for wrath, but the attaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He really is the Savior who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. Be sober, be awake, be comforted. And dear believers, leading your lives under the lordship of Christ, going to work, fulfilling your duties in your household, conducting yourself as citizens and neighbors in this nation at this time, in the towns where you can, keep doing it. And while you do it, look for the coming of your Lord at any moment for you and take great comfort that you know who is in control of history and you know personally the one who one day is going to rule from Jerusalem over a kingdom that will extend over all the earth and will never end. And his name is Jesus. I can't wait till next Sunday morning. We're going to learn about a wall, that he's like a wall of fire around his people. I mean, that's awesome. Um, There's nothing in Marvel comic books that comes close to what Jesus can do for his people. Let's pray. God, we worship you in closing. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you told us of your love for Israel and your plan for the nations long ago. We pray in these uh, tumultuous and amazing days that you would help us to be awake and sober, but also I pray for each one here in Christ to be comforted. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Christ as Savior, that they would wake up, repent of their unbelief, and trust in Jesus as Savior even today. We ask this in his name. Amen.